Matt, she's like, do you like this? So I was like, it makes me think of Interstellar. It's awesome. And so, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll use that one. Um, if you have your Bible, open up to the book of Matthew chapter 4 to begin with. Again, I, I want to just remind you, as we're launching into the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount today, I would highly encourage you, if you don't have, to have that handout. If you haven't picked one up, go pick one up. There's some pins back there. We're going a little bit old school. You're not going to get to rely on the screen as much as you're accustomed to. That's okay. It's called a Bible. You get to open up your app, or you get to open up your Bible on your lap, and you can take some notes and follow along. But as we did before when we introduced the Beatitudes, is what we're doing is we're taking kind of that bird's eye view uh, to begin with, to look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, to be able to get an idea of this is Jesus teaching and preaching in one setting. And we're going to go and we're going to drill down and we're going to take a closer look at specific passages of the Sermon on the Mount. But for us to really grasp what is he really getting at on, on the whole arc of this. And it made me think of if you've ever gone to like the Cheesecake Factory, you remember whenever they would bring you that encyclopedia? Some of you don't know what encyclopedia is. It's a, it's a book that's bound with lots of pages, kind of like this. And, and you would open it up and there's just countless things that you can choose from. And what Tiffany and I will enjoy to do is go, well, let's, let's get some cheesecake, but you pick one, I pick one, and we'll get a little bit of a sampling. And so today we're getting a little bit of a sampling and kind of an overarching just theme and understanding of what is Jesus trying to communicate as a whole whenever he preaches the greatest sermon that has ever been, ever been preached? And so to begin with, I just want you to see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is a familiar verse if you were with us in the Beatitudes series, but he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pray with me. Father, Father, let our desire be this morning that the letter and the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount would become just clear to us, not just so that we can have just some kind of understanding of, of, of the structure of things, but Father, because we want your truth and your word to take root in our hearts and in our lives. And so where you sit, would you pray for yourself and ask the Lord that he would make clear the letter and the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount to you this morning. And if you would, would you pray for me that I would make it clear as we look over the entirety of this sermon. Well, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you who have that handout, you're, you're going to go, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to write them down as best I can. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. You're going to get about 93% fill in because there's going to be a few that I miss. So some of you who are type A's and like, I didn't get this one, just talk to me afterwards. I promise you, I will give you the, 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 the answer of what to fill in. And for those of you who think that this is a game of alliteration, I didn't alliterate at all. And so don't try to be sitting there guessing what the next blank is because uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's just basic and it's just coming straight from Scripture. Uh, some of you may recall, back in 1991, uh, during Gulf Storm, the, when we were fighting in, in Iraq, and some of you may recall during that time, as we were watching just the news coverage, of I remember seeing Iraqi soldiers being huddled up uh, in these different foxholes, and even one particular encounter of not just seeing them surrender, but one time they actually surrendered to a news crew uh, that was filming there, because they were like uh, Americans, and they, they just got to a point of... What, what we were doing in that, in that conflict and in that fight, just the, the power and the military and the artillery that we had was just too overwhelming for their forces. And yet, 
For those Iraqi people, for those soldiers, they had a genuine true belief that what they were doing was noble and pure for their, for their faith in, in Islam, and that they were going to, to conquer the infidels that were coming in and be able to have this sense of relief and victory against their, against their enemy. Now, if you can kind of picture that scene for just a moment of them waving that white flag of surrender in order to survive, then I want you to jump to first century Palestine. I want you to think of these Jewish men and women, of these Jewish men who are now grown and can remember growing up and seeing their fathers have to take a Roman soldier's bag and carry it for a mile or a Roman soldier uh, coming along and, and having to collect taxes, and they're having to pull from their savings just what little bit they may have to be able to pay for the, the might and the power that's bigger and greater than they are. And they realize that in order for us to survive, we have to surrender. But, but what they had, is Jewish men and women in Palestine, they had hope. They had this longing and this hope that they would look back to Old Testament Scripture, for them just Scripture, and they had the promise of this Messiah that was going to come. They, they were eager to have someone who was going to come down and was going to vanquish the foe of this occupation that was Rome and their land, and the Messiah was going to free them, and they were going to, to be set free. They, they would go back to passages like Isaiah 64. Their thoughts would go to, He would rend the heavens and come down. Or Psalm 2, the anointed one is going to rise up and conquer the enemy. They believe this is what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to come. And when Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this had to get some people excited. There had to begin to be some wondering, is, is this the guy? Is this the promised Messiah that we've been waiting for? And, and, and this, this is the truth of the matter, and this is that first one, and I'll, I'll give you the first one. They got the Messiah that was promised. They just didn't get the Messiah that they expected. They got the Messiah that was indeed promised, but they didn't get the Messiah that was expected. They were expecting something differently. So when he shows up and he's going throughout his ministry, and especially when kind of that climactic point of his ministry, the large crowds are gathering to hear him speak, people are whispering, he might be the anointed one. It might be time for us to be able to finally overthrow Rome. And when he, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, follow with me there, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he, after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, and it goes into the Beatitudes, what we're very familiar with if you've been with us. But what they were probably expecting from their hopeful of a Messiah was, as he sat down to begin to speak, he was going to say, brothers, rise up in arms. Now is the time for us to overthrow the enemy. And instead, it's kind of that record scratch moment of where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not what they were expecting. Poor in spirit? What does that have to do with overthrowing anything? Why, why are we talking about poor in spirit? Like, what a way to introduce a sermon to just kind of shock the crowd. And now he's got their attention and they're wondering, where is he going to go with this next? And he says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn? <laughs> we're already mourning, Jesus. Like, we're going through hard times right now. We're paying taxes. We're having to deal with these Roman soldiers. Like, and then he goes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are going to wave that white flag of surrender. Like, like they're, they're just completely overwhelmed with what, what is he saying? 
And what he's doing is with these Beatitudes as we studied is what he's getting at is more than anything else, I want these attitudes of these Beatitudes to take root within your life that you would live them out. And what it's going to demonstrate to you is that God has approved of you, that God has accepted you. And isn't that an interesting way to kind of think about God accepting us? Because I grew up in church, as I imagine, I know some of you, your stories, as you have, I grew up where there was just kind of this common vernacular that it was time for an invitation or a time of response, and do you want to accept Jesus into your heart or into your life? I get the principle, I get the heart behind that, but truly, the, our acceptance of Jesus doesn't, doesn't account really to anything, <laughs> It's not that we are needing to accept Him. We are needing He who is holy, that He would be willing to approve and accept us. The sinner, the sinful, the one who has willingly separated ourselves from a good and holy God and His standard. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying here is, is God can approve of you. God will accept you. But, but we're going to have to drill down and take a deeper look at what that is because here's the beauty of it. When you do, when God has accepted and approved of you, you're going to behave and conduct your life differently. That's where he goes next in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 16. This is that passage that some of you may be familiar with. Listen to what it says. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He says, you are also the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He said, if you live out these Beatitudes, if these are true of you, how you're going to live will look differently. Your response to the Beatitudes is that you will be salt and light. When you've been accepted and approved of God, you will be salt, you will be light, you will stand out, you will be different. In the same way, salt on a food makes it a little bit tastier or it preserves it. Light in a dark room, it changes things. There's a stark contrast and difference. And I believe at this point, Jesus being who Jesus is, recognizes that what they were expecting is not what they are hearing, and he wants to get to the heart of the matter. And I think he has an understanding, whether it was for them or even for us today, that is he beginning to teach a new faith? And Jesus is wanting to, to shout from the rooftop, no, 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 no. In fact, he just finishes the introduction. The Beatitudes and Salt and Light is kind of the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he comes to kind of his main point, his thesis, that's going to launch him into the heart of his sermon. He says, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is something that you should underline, that you should circle. This is the heart of the entire Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What I'm about to share with you may sound wildly different, than with what you grew up with, but it is exactly as it was always intended to be. When he says that he's going to be the one who is going to fulfill the prophets, I just want to take you through a brief, brief journey. You can jot these down on your piece of paper, or you can follow along with me, but listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew chapter 2, verse 5 it says, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it says that he remained there until the death of Herod. Why? This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew 2, 17, 
It says, then this is what has been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. Matthew 2.23, it says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Matthew 3.3, it says, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet. I think you're getting the pattern here. The gospel writer Matthew is wanting to help us see and realize, even before Jesus makes this statement in the Sermon on the Mount, he is fulfilling long-ago prophecies that he is exactly who he says he is. But he not only fulfills the prophets, he's not doing away with those. He's not abolishing the words of the prophets, Scripture of old. He's also going to fulfill the law. And, and really, that's what we see in this first main section of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, through the very end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. We're going to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's going to make the law clear. What he's really doing is this, and get this, Jesus is reinterpreting their interpretation of the law. You say, well, what, what does that mean? He's wanting to get back to the original intent of the law. What had happened was, especially during what we call the intertestamental period, from the book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, there's like 400 years of silence. There's nothing. And what had happened was religious leaders were taking the Old Testament Scripture of the prophets and the law, and they were wanting to, to interpret it uh, how they wanted to interpret Scripture. And they were wanting to keep it to a certain standard, but they began to kind of lower that. And Jesus is saying, what I'm getting back to is the original intent of the law and the prophets. I'm not a doing away with it. I'm getting back to what God wanted it to be. I'm going to undo what you have done because it's a mess. And what he's about to show us in Matthew 5 especially is that everything he expects of us, get this, can only be fulfilled in him. What he expects of you, follower of Jesus, can only be accomplished and fulfilled in him. So in a sentence, if you will, kind of a thesis statement, Jesus is going to teach them that Christ is Christianity. And you say, well, that, that makes sense to me, but that wouldn't have made sense to them at that time. But Christ is Christianity. They thought that the law was just keeping a specific standard. Kind of true. They got the law, they got the Levitical code, and then the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to take the standard that God had set, and they began to lower it just bit by bit because it was so lofty, who could possibly live up to the standard of the law and the prophets? And when, when you fail, <laughs> you like to change the rules of the game, don't you? Don't, don't tell me you haven't ever played Monopoly with someone or some kind of card game with someone. You're like, oh, let's reinterpret the rules for just a second so that I can win. We all do it, and that's what they were doing. They're like, what if we brought it down just a little bit? But again, if you want to be accepted by God, or what they were saying is if we want to be accepted by God, we've got to keep this average, this kind of like made-up average that we have. And Jesus is wanting them to know, no, 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 no. Christianity is above the average. Christianity is above the average. That's what he's sharing in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, as he really reinterprets and gets back to the heart of the law. And he gives some examples, and a lot of them come straight from the Ten Commandments. Be very familiar to them, familiar probably to many of you. But he takes samples and examples from the Ten Commandments, and what he begins to say in verse 21, look at what it says. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And what he does throughout chapter 5 from here on is he has about six different moments where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said this way, 
That is true, but I'm going to give you the heart of the interpretation of this law. And the first one is about murder. He said, he said, for you, you think it's about murder, but really it's about anger. That's the heart of the issue of this law. That's the intended issue of what God was trying to, to deal with even there in the Old Testament. It's not about murder. It's about anger. If, if you want to murder somebody but, and you come up to them, but what if the gun misfires? What do you do then? I think G, what Jesus is saying is, well, if you loaded the gun, you put them in your crosshairs, you pulled the trigger, and it misfires, your heart is still murdering. <laughs> You'll say, but technically, technically, and Jesus is saying, quit getting to the technicality, quit getting to the external. I'm looking at the heart of what your heart was determining to do. It was to kill, to murder that individual because of your anger and because of your hate. The issue is the heart. He goes on to the next example that we would hear from the Ten Commandments. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from your body, for it is better to lose one of your parts of the body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell." Kind of interesting, Matthew 5.29 is what led one of our early church fathers, Origen, to actually castrate himself. His thought was, this is how you deal with the problem. I'm not condoning that. That's not what I'm telling you to do. But the application is there is, is that we realize we want to remove those things that are going to prevent us from living out how he would have us. But even with that, even if you put every measure in place to try to not sin against God or keep that standard of God, because of what we're born into, we're born into sin, even if you were like a, a monk and you said, I'm going to separate from everything that the world has to offer. I'm going to hole up in this cabin, no technology, no outside influence. You're still going to sin. You're still flawed. We're still broken. We're still in need, even if we isolated ourselves in that way, because Jesus is saying it's not about the external. It's about the internal. It's about the heart of the issue. Uh, the Pharisees had essentially established some kind of bogus standard that was keeping them from needing to have a pure heart. It was all about the technical. I didn't technically commit adultery. I didn't technically murder that individual. And they were able to justify anything because of a technicality. Do you ever do that? <laughs> I do that. I have moments of where, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't really lie. It was a white lie. It was a nice lie. It was one so that my wife wouldn't feel bad about herself. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to justify why I am able to do or say specific things, and we develop our own standard of what is acceptable. Jesus extends this idea of lust into the issue of divorce. Because what, would ha what was happening in that day and time, again, the, the religious leaders were saying, that standard that we had in the Old Testament the, from the Levitical law, it was just so extreme. Like, who can keep that? And really, what was happening is men in that time were saying, I am lusting after that individual, and the way for me to be able to get away with that is what I'm going to do is I'm going to find some way to kind of abuse and pervert and manipulate this Scripture to give me the excuse and justification to divorce really anybody for any reason so that way I can pursue that person to fulfill my lustful desires. They were really good at this, and we're really good at this too. And what Jesus is saying, whether it's lust or a divorce, it's not about lust or divorce, it's about love. 
It's about love. And again, you could read Matthew 5, 31, and it says, it says, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And we read that and we're like, what does that really mean? It means what it means. But, but no, 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 what about if we drill down into the Greek? What does it really mean then? Jesus isn't giving a new standard. He's going back to the original intent, the heart of it all before it was twisted. Because we're not looking at just an average. We're looking at something that is above average, not at the Pharisees and the religious people's average, not our average. We're looking at something above average. We're looking at Jesus and God's intent and God's law. Now, we're going to be able to deep dive into some of these in the weeks to come. And I, and I would even say now, we are going to go into verses 31 and 32. And we are going to look at the issue of divorce because it's something that I think too many people don't want to deal with in the life of the church. As I was preparing over the last several months of just kind of, as we were going through the Beatitudes, I was just looking at commentaries and reading and listening even to some other sermons. And it was so often that people would skip these two verses because they didn't want to deal with these two very real practical verses that are in our world today, as rampant as divorce is then, it is today as well. And we want to kind of go, well, we don't, we don't want to offend and we don't want to take the, um, the issue of, of, of this and cause it to be uncomfortable. And what I found is that some closest friends of mine who have gone through divorce have said, speak on it, pastor because I want my kids and my grandkids and my friends to hear what God has to say. And far too often, we, we skirt around it because we're afraid that the implication or the intent might be too high, but God's standard is incredibly high. We want to see what He has to say. So I ask that you pray for me for that Sunday because I want it to be a Sunday of tact and love, but truth. And so he goes on and he says, Let's continue to get to the heart of the matter. Matthew 5, he talks about an oath. He says, again, you shall have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. What he's talking about is not necessarily about a public oath per se, of like going to a courtroom, but what was happening in that day and time is people were saying, I will make an oath... <laughs> but I won't swear against the, things, against the name of God. But I will His temple or His footstool or, or the earth or whatever it may be. Those are the things. And they literally had books of, of oaths that you could take and oaths that you couldn't take, oaths that you could break and oaths that you couldn't break. It, it was remarkable how, how detailed they got into it. And Jesus strips all of that away and says, just throw it into the trash can and come back to, it's not about an oath, it's about integrity. Are you a man of your word? Are you a man or a woman that your yes is yes and that your no is no? That's what it's about. Don't get so caught up in this. Get caught up in your integrity. He continues in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. He says, You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, uh, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. It's not about retaliation. It's about love. It's not about retaliation, it's about love. I can remember my dad telling me this passage, and I was asking him, Dad, what does this mean? And he said, well, well son, because I was thinking about, like, if I'm in a fight, 
Son, if, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn it. But if they come after you again, go after them. You got to defend yourself. I don't really think that's the intent of exactly what Jesus is talking about here, but, uh, but it did allow me to hopefully defend myself. But what we're doing is what Jesus is saying is when you're not about retaliation, but about love, even with your enemies. And some of you right now, someone's cropping up in your head and you're like, oh, I don't like that guy. And, and, and if you would retaliate, not retaliate, but, but come after them with love, what happens is this. When you force your enemy or someone that you vehemently disagree with and you position yourselves for them to see themselves, to put a mirror up, when you're loving on them as they are striking out against you, they may continue to strike out against you, but they're going to see themselves. They may not change, but they'll see themselves when we choose not to retaliate, and you go, that sounds kind of grand, but does it really change someone? For someone to love somebody, even when people are continuing to strike out against them. Jesus on the cross is the prime example of this. He chose not to retaliate. He chose to love. And as He loved, and as He hung upon that cross, even one of His persecutors and crucifiers says, Truly, this was the Son of God. As He's seen, as we are striking against this man, and all He is saying is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And He's talking so kindly to this other criminal on this side of the cross and the other criminal on that side of the cross. And He's saying to His mother, Mother, this is your son. John, this is now your mom. Like He's continuing to take care of people. He's continuing to demonstrate love. And when that mirror of love came up against their hate, it caused them to see internally of who they were. If it wasn't for Jesus on the cross, I would have never seen who I truly am, and that is someone who is in need of the love of God because of my anger and my hate and my lust and my retaliation. I needed to see that. Your enemies need to see the love of Christ within you, and it will be incredibly difficult, but Jesus never said it would be easy. So, finally, he comes to the end of chapter 5 and verse 43. He says, you have heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All of this is saying Christianity is above the average. Pharisees, religious leaders, people today in the 21st century don't miss the intent and the heart of God's good and perfect law. Christianity is above the average. And so when he, he ends this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, when he ends this, he comes to a summary statement in chapter 5, verse 48. Look at what it says. The summary statement is, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does that mean? <laughs> Again, it, it, means, it means what it means. People are ready for this to be explained. I mean, we could get into it, and we will when it comes time, but he's using a specific word that has to do with perfection. And some people read this and go, well, what does that mean? And it's not sinlessness, because he's about to talk about how you need to be forgiven of your sin in chapter 6. So he's not talking about sinlessness. He's talking about this idea that in the end and that there will be this completion that if you want the kingdom of heaven, which is what all of this Sermon on the Mount is, is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you cannot manufacture some standard and say, I'll keep that one. That's the one that I will hold to. And that's what will make me feel good enough that when I stand before the Lord, I think I lived a pretty good life compared to that guy. No, Jesus is saying, you've got to be perfect. You've got to be above the standard. You've got to strive for perfection. And at this moment, his listeners and you right now should be hearing that and going, I can't do that. Exactly. 
You can't do that. And this is the beauty of when you study Scripture within the accordance of all of Scripture, the canon of Scripture. We know this truth. The truth of the matter is that if you are in Christ, you are perfect because Christ is perfect. When God sees you, He sees Jesus because the righteousness of God has been imputed upon your life, lavished upon your life. God attributes His righteousness onto you. That's how we are perfect, because of Jesus. So Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He completes it. Christ is Christianity. He's not the average. He's above the average. And my hope is that as you come to the end of chapter 5, you're beginning to see just how much you need Jesus. Because left to our own devices, we will create our own standards. We will lower the standard of God. And we'll think somehow we're going to figure it out. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You need me to be able to be accepted and approved by God. You need Jesus. And this is what I fear. I fear that in my life, being in church all of my life, and some of you might be similar, is that if I'm not careful, I can manage this lifestyle. I can manage the church culture. Some of you, as soon as you walked in through this door, or you were getting in your car this morning, this is a particular way that I should dress, this is a particular way that I should talk, and this is the particular kind of conversations I should have. I know how to work the church culture. Just like when you go to work, I know how to work the, the, the work culture with my friends or my family. There, there's certain things that I know that are acceptable and unacceptable. I remember it being this way when I went to seminary. I remember showing up there. I didn't know anything about anything. And, and I, I can remember being in there and I think I had the, uh, the NIV or something, and people were like, <laughs> NIV, nearly inspired translation. That's what that means. And I was like, what? It's a, it's a Bible. And they're like, no, 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 you need this. And, and they're like, you need this translation if you really want to you know, kind of fit in with this culture. And, and, and if we're not careful, we'll do the same here. You really want to fit in, and you got, you got to do this, you got to do that. And it's one of those things where Jesus is saying, no, 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 no I, don't, I don't want you to manage a culture. I want you to manufacture some kind of standard, a way to navigate your life I, I want you to not just simply fit in with what the world or even what the church has to offer. I don't want you to just get along and get by. I want you to thrive, and I want you to live out what I've intended because I am Christianity. If we're not careful, we're going to do exactly as the Pharisees, try to obtain and maintain some made-up bogus standard and the danger of that is not only for us, but it's for the world around us and for your family members, because they'll see you and they will begin to mimic you and think that's the way Christianity is supposed to be. And we don't get them back to the heart of things. We get them to hypocrisy. And what Jesus begins to do from chapter 5 into chapter 6 is he moves from the heart to the hypocrisy. He's saying that if your faith is only just an, is just an average faith, then it's never going to be below the surface. It's never going to be below the surface. So chapter 5, your faith must be above average. Chapter 6 and 7, your faith must be below the surface. It's got to be deep, real, authentic, and genuine. And so I think all of us hate things that are fake. Have you ever had fake peanut butter where it's like, you know, healthy? It's like natural? It's, ugh, it's disgusting. It's not intended for, for consumption. Others of you, I, I apologize, but if you're drinking Diet Dr. Pepper, it does not taste like regular Dr. Pepper. It's nasty. It's fake. It's not the real thing. I want the real deal. And what we want is we love authentic people. We love people who are going to be real, genuine, and transparent. Jesus is the most real and transparent of them all, and he's saying, if you would have an above-average faith, 
then you will be authentic. You will live a life that is below the surface. And that's what I desire for us. And so what he begins to do is he says, if Christianity is to be below the surface, to be real and genuine, okay, I've dealt with the heart, let's deal with the hypocrisy. He says, here's real faith. This is what real faith looks like. And we don't have time to go through them all, so we're just going to hit them real quick. But number one is real faith is real giving. He talks about what it is to give financially, saying it's not about you, it's about to help other people. He talks about real prayer in chapter 6, verse 5. He's letting them know that this is about His kingdom come, His will be done. Less focus on us, more focus on God. There's some real prayer. He goes from real prayer to real fasting. It's not to draw attention to yourself, it's to get your heart and mind focused on God. He goes on to real treasure in chapter 6, verse 19, that our careers and our lives wouldn't be consumed about money and ambition, but it would be consumed about the the ambition of following Christ and leveraging what we have for the glory of God, understanding that all of our needs will be provided, that we would go on chapter 7, that we would have real discernment, that we would know right from wrong, that we would be able to make those, those judgment calls, that we would be able to understand if it's worth sharing the truth with someone or if it's going to be like casting pearls to swine he, he gives us all of this truth of what real faith looks like in real practical examples. And what I would boil it down to this is sometimes what we do is we're like, I'm a Christian. My faith is above the average. I believe that my faith hopefully is below the surface. And we say this is real faith. It's real giving. It's real prayer. It's real fasting. It's real treasure. We, we boast about prayer, but how often do we pray? We boast about the Word of God and knowing the Word of God. How often are we in the Word of God? We, we, we boast about the, the church and community, but how often is it an afterthought? Or is it, if there's something else going on, then I'll be a part of this community of faith. There might be something better. <laughs> he goes on and he says, man, real faith, real Christianity. If you read through chapter 6, it sounds wildly ambitious and incredibly difficult to be able to meet this standard. And so he, he closes in chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, or really 7 through 11, kind of unusually, and it might seem like this stands out and it seems a little bit odd, but he says, in order for you to have this real Christianity and this real faith that's really hard, you need real help. And so he tells us to pray. He says, ask, in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Some of you have studied that before, and you know that what he's saying is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, be relentless with that. You need help in order to live out this faith. And so you come after him, and you pursue him, and you seek him again and again and again. And so what Christ does is he he gives us that introduction of the Beatitudes. Our response to that Beatitudes is that we're to be salt and light. He gives us that main idea that Christ is Christianity. And then he goes into the two main points, Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 and 7, of that if Christ is Christianity, then our faith must be above the average, and if Christ is Christianity, then our faith must be below the surface. As he finishes the body of his sermon, the heart of his sermon, he comes to the conclusion, and and, and he shares in this conclusion something that to me is is just terrifying. He He gives four warnings. And he's hoping that we would heed these warnings. The first warning is in verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. 
There are two gates, two roads, two ways, however you want to fill that in. And what, he's, what I'm essentially seeing with this is he's saying, as you've heard my sermon today, listeners, here on the mountainside, how will you respond to it? Which path are you going to take? The one that's broad to where you can set the standard or the one that's narrow, which is His standard and His way? He gives the second warning in verses 15 through 20. He talks about two fruits or two trees. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. He tells us to heed that warning. And then he goes on and he says in verses 21 through 20, 20, uh, 23, there's these two confessions. Essentially, the confession is, Lord, Lord. One confession is going to be genuine. One confession is not going to be genuine, even though you think it's genuine. This is, to me, one of the most terrifying passages of Scripture, is that there could be those of us that could run ragged and exhausted doing things that are good and for the church and for God, so we think, and then we stand before God and we say, Lord, Lord, and He goes, I don't know you. You could, we don't have time to go through it, but if you go back in your own time through the Sermon on the Mount, notice, underline, and highlight how many times the idea and the theme of sight, seeing, is all throughout, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's everywhere. What I, what I want to caution us, what I think Jesus is cautioning us to, is don't get caught up in the doing. The doing is not bad, but don't get so caught up in the doing, but get caught up in, in what real faith is, which is going to lead to doing. Get caught up in being in Christ, approved and accepted by God through faith in Him. Because verses 21 through 23 of chapter 7 is incredibly heavy. It's an remarkable way to end this sermon. It's kind of on a down note, but it's because He wants His, his listeners to not leave going, oh, I felt good because I went to church today. It was, no, I was encountered with the truth, and i got to deal with it today because my soul is at stake because I could, I could wear myself ragged, be exhausted for the things of God, quote, unquote, and stand before Him, and He won't see me. And sometimes why we do what we do, if we're being honest, is because we want people to see what we do. That guy's really working hard for the Lord. Look at that lady. Never a bad word has ever come out of her mouth, even when she hits her finger with a hammer. Like, oh, wow, what a woman of God. Man, look at the way that they act and that they behave. All fine, all well, all good, but it does not matter necessarily what people see in you. It matters what God sees in you. And when the dust settles of all of your commotion and exhaustion and just attempts of serving and living life, when the dust settles and you're done moving around and God looks at you and He can see into your heart, He goes, I don't see Jesus. I see a lot of activity, but I don't see Jesus. Friends, does God see Jesus in you? And it's not going to be based upon how hard you work. It's based upon your surrender and submission to Him. Because He's above the average, so I need the one above the average. He's the one that's going to make my faith below the surface, so I need Him in my life. To close... He has these four warnings. Um, I'll give you the other one because I just realized I skipped it. Uh, two foundations. You can read that later. Two foundations. You have these four warnings, 
But there's one warning, a fifth one, that we didn't see. And the fifth one comes actually out of chapter 5, and we'll be done. In chapter 5, verses, verse 18 specifically, but for context, we'll read 17 as well. But there's this one last warning that we skipped that I think is instrumental to being able to really heed and obey those last four. Jesus says, again, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but fulfill. And listen to what he says, for I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest iota or smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says, whoever then annuls or relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, a lot of times we want to get to what does the ranking mean? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll study it later. It's there. <laughs> but are we going to take away what Jesus is saying here or not? Some of you may know, some of you may not know, but back in 1631, there was commissioned by King James a, a Bible, and it had some issues. It was known as the Sinner's Bible, the Wicked Bible, because those who were commissioned to, to work on this copy of Scripture, they left out a particularly key word out of the book of Exodus on accident. It wasn't intentional, but it changes things drastically when you take the word not out of the book of Exodus. So people were receiving these copies and going, thou shalt commit adultery. That changes things. That makes things drastically different. When Jesus is saying here that all of the Word of God is going to be, uh, is not going to pass away, He's talking really about the sufficiency and errancy, just the priority of Scripture. And He's saying, if that's the case, if this is true and this standard is always true, then what I don't want you to do is I want you to be careful, those of you who are of the faith, that what you are saying and what you are teaching matters and it makes a huge impact and difference. And if you're not careful, you may not be as extreme as the wicked or sinner's Bible and you're not telling people, don't do this or don't follow Jesus, don't believe in this. You're not going to that extreme extent. But what we can do, even within the life of the church today, with the best of intentions, is what we will do is we will relax and we will annul the weight and the heaviness and the implication of what Jesus is wanting us to know and live out. It's kind of like untying something. Some of you may know this expression, but if there's a calf tied to a post, don't untie that calf. It'll drift away. If we're not careful, if we begin to relax the intent and the implication and understanding of what Jesus is actually teaching, what the Word of God is teaching, because we're afraid it's just it's too much for people to hear right now. People don't want to hear that they're a sinner, but they need to hear that. People don't need to know about the reality of hell, of hell and the consequences of sin, but what if we don't? Who truly loves someone at that moment? <laughs> But at times, because we don't want to be offensive, especially in this day and culture, because we might get canceled, Jesus is saying, be careful, because if you, if you don't heed this warning, though you're a part of the kingdom, apparently, you'll be called least, <laughs> because you relax the, the heart and the integrity and the intent and the, and the power and the gravity of God's Word. 
And when you do that, when we begin to lessen God's standard, when we teach it, when we talk about it in a small group, when we read it on our own and go, ah, this is what I really think it means, when we begin to take away the weight of it, then those last four warnings of chapter 7 begin to become manifested and true. All of a sudden we look up and we go, I I raised my child in the church. Why? Why are they drifting? Now, they have their own responsibility in their relationship to the Lord, but I wonder if we can't look back and go, did I begin to drift from the standard of God's Word? And again, we're not legalistic. We desire to hold to a standard that is above anything and everything else because it brings life. And if we're not careful, what will happen is we'll have, we'll have a, a time of, of responding to the Sermon on the Mount and go, interesting information, Jesus. I'm glad that I know it. But when we pull away from it and go, I don't really want to deal with the oath issue or the integrity issue or loving your neighbor or loving your enemy, that, that's just too extreme. I'll, I'll shoehorn something else in. Be nice to just about everybody. But if they attack you, then you can be mean. It's like, no, no, no. Jesus is saying this is the standard. And if we're not careful, we may look up and someone is on a different path that's wide and destructive, eating from a bad tree and experiencing some bad fruit. And then, heaven forbid, they are making a confession that is actually false, though they think it is true. Because we who are responsible for the truth drifted from the truth. Let us hold fast and true to what he has to say. So, this morning, in our time of response, this is what I want to ask you to do I want to ask you to heed these warnings. I'm not asking you to attempt to be good, to be church person, to be religious. I'm asking that you would give yourself to the one who is already good. That you would be someone that wouldn't say, I'm going to play the religious game. I showed up. I'm going to kind of, kind of fit in and, and do what I need to do. But I would surrender my life, place my faith in the one who is above the average and who is real. I'm going to place my faith in Jesus. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing. And as we sing, maybe you need to stay seated. Maybe you need to come and visit with me. But the two questions I will leave you with is this. Is your faith above the average? And is your faith below the surface? And it's only possible if your faith, your life, your hope, your trust is in Jesus. So if you would, would you guys stand? Would you respond to the heart and the structure and the intent of the Sermon on the Mount this morning? That we wouldn't walk away today and just kind of go, information, that we would say, it matters that I am tethered to Jesus and I don't drift from Him. It matters not just for me, but it matters for the next generation. It matters for my kids and my grandkids, for my nieces and my nephews, that we don't drift from the incredible standard of God and His Word.